Episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I'm so excited that you're here and we get to have this conversation and jam on things weekly, all things relational that just, you know, it makes my soul get excited. It makes me have, you know, I think I called it a soulgasm the other day and I was like, I like that word. I feel a little soulgasmic. And you know, the reason I love talking about these things is everything in life is relationship. You know, everything's relational. You're always in relationship to everything, including self. So this is such a cool part about being a human being is that we are the only species that really thinks about how it thinks, that are aware of its awareness. You know, and if you're not aware of your awareness or you're not aware of how you're feeling and what you're thinking or you disconnect from parts of that because you don't like it or you pretend you don't know, you're going to experience some dysfunction, right? Because they just become compensatory strategies or ways that we deflect from things that we are afraid to feel or don't know how to feel or we're taught not to feel. So there's so many things that go into exploring our relationships. And the reason that the majority of the context of the conversations I have are romantically based and you know on that subject is because whatever we're bad at, if we have bad boundaries with money or bad boundaries with people, we'll have really bad boundaries in romantic relationships. Everything is amplified by romantic relationships, generally speaking, because it's where we, you know, we place our self-worth in. We, um, you know, we say, like, how you respond to me, if you love me or are supposed to love me, determines whether I'm lovable. So it's really a constant exploration of how we have externalized our self-worth by seeking its validity in the results we get in romantic relationships. I hope that makes sense. And that's why when we explore things like our relationship to money in the episode I did with Selena Gray, we see that people don't get divorced because of money. They get divorced because of their stories around money. Money is very emotional. And each person has a money story, just like each person has a story about what romantic relationships mean. And also, and especially, our relationship to our bodies and our relationship to health and how intertwined that is with our emotional state. So this week, that's what we're jamming on. I have so many, I'm I'm just so grateful for where life has taken me, and in this moment, I am especially feeling that, to be able to be in your ear, and to share in conversations with you, and that we can do this, like, isn't it just amazing, like, just take a moment to breathe that in, wow, and life has brought me, when I did my certification in positive psychology, I met so many amazing people. Uh, I went to New York for it, and one of the people I met was Julie Graham, who is unbelievable positive psychology practitioner, um, and her and her husband, Robert Graham, Dr. Graham, um, they have a clinic in Brooklyn that is moving to NYC, I believe, that is called uh, Fresh Med NYC, and they are just unbelievable. I just love these two, and Rob... um, he is trained. I'm not going to probably get all his credentials correctly, but you'll hear them as the podcast begins. But he's trained in internal medicine, went to Harvard, public health, I believe. I mean, this guy, functional medicine, he works in all these aspects of treating the total patient. And his wisdom is beyond 
He's a very good friend of mine. I'm grateful to have him in my life, him and his wife. And so this conversation is about that, a relationship to our health, a relationship to our bodies, um, what medicine will and can look like, and how to really optimize um, all of these parts of us. And looking at our relationship to self is so important. So before we begin, which will begin very soon, I need to ask a favor. If you could please go to wherever you listen to this and leave a five-star rating, that is very helpful for me, and a written review, that really allows it to bump up in the charts so it gets to more people's ears. If this episode or any previous episode has really helped move you or change you or transform the way you think, it is so... I am. I experience so much gratitude if you can share the episodes, if you can help this get into more people's ears. That is the the really the only thing that I ask in return for all of the content that I put out is to help me expand the content, um, to help more people. Because we all have the right, the birthright, to emotional wellness, relational wellness, and the opportunity to improve how we communicate and build that skill set. So without further ado... Dr. Robert Graham. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. This week I've got my main man, my friend, my homie, my brother from another mother, uh, all the way across the East Coast representing Queens. I sounded like a DJ for a second there. Um, Rob, Dr. Robert Graham. Good time. What's up, Rob? How you doing, man? What's up, Mark? How are you, brother? I'm so excited to have you on here. So for people who do not know, Rob is a physician in Brooklyn uh, and New York, right? A little bit of both. They're kind of, are they one in the same? Can I say that? Or will people from Brooklyn and people from New York both be upset? Well, I would say that I am a born and raised New Yorker who has a medical practice in New York City, which is currently in Brooklyn, New York. And it is called Fresh Med. Fresh Medicine. That's right. And the, so uh, because your training itself um, has so many letters and experiences that I don't want to butcher it. So you're an internist and in, trained in internal medicine. And then- trained in internal medicine. And then went up to Harvard in 2003 to do a fellowship in integrative and complementary medicine. While at Harvard, I obtained my master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health, as well as obtained a fellowship in medical education at the Harvard Harvard Medical School and a clinical research fellowship at Harvard Medical School. So as JLo calls herself the triple threat, I am the triple threat in medicine. And now you're a chef too. And then, and then for past past uh, nine years, I've been taking doctors out of the hospital and throwing them into kitchens to teach them the value of cooking, particularly whole food, plant based diets. And as of August fourteenth, two thousand and eighteen, I've become one of I hear only twenty chefs around the world who are also a certified physician. Wow, that's actually really insane that it's that small of a number. Yeah, yeah you think about it. Well, if you think about the training, right? If you think about where the left left brain and right brain work, you know, culinary school and the techniques of culinary arts is it's very creative and very hands on. And typically in medicine, it's a very cerebral. And I always forget it's at the right side or the left side which dominates that. But 
rarely do you find both. And unfortunately, you know, once you choose medicine, uh, you rarely go to culinary school. Uh, there are some some docs that have gone through culinary school and want to you know expand their their portfolio and become doctors, but rarely does a doctor then become a chef. Well, and you've spoken about this before, but in the context of actually like nutrition education and physicians, tell us a little bit about that or the lack thereof. Yeah, so I would say uh, doctors are hungry for nutrition knowledge, right? And so what ends up happening is in medical school, just like in every, and I don't know how it is in Canada, but, you know, education has shifted to more science, technology, engineering, and math, the STEM programs. And so what we have forgotten is these uh, life, I guess, life skills, including food and nutrition. Um, In medical schools, there is a minimum requirement of 25 hours over the course of four years of medical training where you should be getting some sort of nutrition education. Unfortunately, what ends up happening, it is usually embedded into something like biochemistry and pathophysiology, understanding the birth of diseases, where unfortunately we focus our two years of medical school on disease management and the studies of diseases and really have marginalized and minimalized um, the importance of nutrition, let alone other lifestyle factors like what you guys, you and Julie have trained in positive psychology, happiness, meditation, exercise, sleep, and what we call the fresh pillars of well-being. Mm-hmm. And the and you know even in the context of their relationship to their emotions, their relationship to other people, and how those all impact the body, and how the when the body's impacted in that way, how that leads to inflammation and health, and all those beautiful things that you get to deal with. Yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, you know, and it's funny because you know going through traditional medical education, these courses like nutrition or uh, what we call, I, can, I think it's called the art of medicine when it talks about love and relationships and, and bonding with patients, better understanding their psychosocial emotional needs. You know, it's thrown into gross anatomy, which is so encompassing and so taxing and so full of memorization. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, and by the way, you have to be at two o'clock to understand the importance of of emotional compassion, empathy with patients. And so oftentimes it's like you're trying to do two things at one time where gross anatomy is so demanding that, you know, this, this stuff just becomes bullshit and falls to the wayside where unfortunately that's really where I think healthcare really begins, right? It's through emotions and through relationships, through the doctor patient relationships, through understanding how stress impacts everything else in your life how it impacts inflammation, how food has a role in inflammation, all that stuff is kind of minimalized in the biomedical training model. Well, when I think about the context of medicine, you know, I grew up with a father who studied heart failure. My brother's very like scientifically based. I like to always run things by him because he's sort of like the ultimate scientific cynic for anything I say. Um, And I I find it very fascinating that we're sort of like arguing often we're in conflict between two worlds that if it, if it's can't be measured, it doesn't exist. And therefore that's truth and science is fact. And if it's not proven by a double blind placebo control trial, then there's no validity to it. And then we have this old world that is very much about 
like, you know, old arts, old ways of treating things like Chinese medicine, uh, meditation, Buddhism, you know, all these different Eastern arts that I, they seem to be integrating a lot back. Like we seem to be going back to where we came from in some sense too. Like those weren't proven so we don't use them anymore. And then now we're like, oh, wait a second, you study meditation and you know, it's got dramatically quite powerful results. So yeah, in the context of that, you know. I'll tap it a little bit. I, I think it's, that's, you know, maybe we could start off by defining what integrative medicine is, right? Because yeah. that's where I think you're trying, you're trying alluding, alluding to a little bit is because integrative medicine is evident. Number one, it's evidence-based medicine. Mm-hmm. So therefore there has been scientific validity and proof for its utility. Let it be herbs, let it be a diet, let it be acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine. So it's not this, what many, again, in conventional allopathic medical training consider like complementary or alternative. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm very proud about saying is that I am an evidence-based doctor that does integrative medicine. And so it really looks at the science for wherever there is science, therefore there is truth, right? That's kind of one of the principles of, of, of the biomedical model. So therefore you, we can use it in an evidence-based form to better help patients achieve better health outcomes. And that's a really important factor because, you know, what we, we do in integrative medicine and to a certain extent, to a certain extent, functional medicine, we use an evidence-based approach. And that's where I think this misunderstanding happens is that um, we who are board certified in training are not pulling things out of a hat and, and testing on patients. This has already been proven. But to your point about, you know, no one has still understand why we sleep. We all do it, but no one really understands why, right? And so there's never, ne- there doesn't have to be a clinical trial to prove that sleep is important or sleep is a medical necessity. One of the best sample examples I, I've ever heard of a randomized control trial that is lacking is a randomized control trial of people jumping out of planes with parachutes, <laughs> right? So there's never been a, a randomized control trial about people leaping out of airplanes without parachutes, right? Because you just wouldn't do it. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, using my hat as a public health scientist, understanding the precautionary principle, the precautionary principle, you really hear it a lot in climate change in today's discussions, because the burden of proof doesn't have to be there for us to adopt a healthy or a more sustainable behavior. So we don't wait until the, the, the forest is on fire for us to get, on board, right? We, we, don't need, we don't need to see the, the, the ill effects of climate change for us to start adopting some changes. Mm-hmm. Same thing with healthcare, right? So we don't have to wait until the clinical trial comes out to say why we need to sleep. We just need to sleep when we know we feel better when we do sleep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I guess like in the context of your guys' work, you and Julie at your clinic in Brooklyn, what is in your experience you know, people come to you f- who don't tend to get results with other, you know, they might be at the end of their, um, you know, I, I, what is it like medical rope in some yeah, sense. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so you get sort of like some of the most complex patients and complex experiences. And then, you know, you get, you know, you have, obviously you have regular patients that come to you on, for regular visits. And I'm wondering what is, do you see as sort of the most uh, the biggest medical crisis of our time or, or currently what you see most in your clinic? So I guess there's two, they're not mutually inclusive, I guess. So depending on 
regarding my, my patients, right? Yeah. And so I kind of have an interesting breakdown. So yeah, so I do have patients that are just frustrated by the conventional medical model where you get a pill for an ill, mm-hmm. right? And you walk in with a simple cough and the next thing you know, you're, you're getting three or four different tests and you're walking out of that doctor's office in about eight to 15 minutes with five pills. Mm-hmm. Or, and so that's one. One of my major focuses in my practice is GI health and the role of the microbiome in, in, in autoimmunity, in, in inflammation, and, and all of those other things. The other part of my patient population is what I call my whole foods, health-oriented patient population that, are, that I, I believe in integrative medicine and functional medicine are just more congruent with their own health beliefs, that we have control, that we should be offered self-care programs and understanding of self-care which I always say is the best form of healthcare, allowing the physician to take time with their patients to understand what their health goals are and develop a plan that is both obtainable and sustainable. And I can't do it myself. So that's why, you know, my wife and I partner, and that's where a lot of health coaching comes into play. Things like positive psychology, setting smart goals, understanding the value of gratitude and self-love and self-worth, where without that, healthcare doesn't happen. Um, and so it is a physician-led, team-based approach to healthcare. Um, and we shouldn't demand that the doctor knows everything because we're not trained to know everything. And so that's where I think the future of healthcare will be a multidisciplinary team of health professionals that help patients identify their health goals from the onset and not just what I call drive-by medicine. Yeah, I mean, I've been into your clinic, and I know that you get, and you know, nutrition counseling, you get positive psychology interventions. You also get to poop into a container at your house and send it in to the mail, which I found that's interesting. Collecting your own poop for anyone who hasn't done that. Yeah, it was a t- unfortunately, that's the only way to know what your b- microbiome <laughs> is, right? You got to share it with me. Yeah, and so exactly. you got to poop in a box, man. You got to poop in a box for us to understand. What the, the, the role of the microbiome is, right? But and, then it's so fascinating what you discover from that. Yeah. And I think, you know, we often hear of the father Hippocrates, right? He, he said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. But he also said something really important. He, he said, all diseases begin in the gut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 2000 years ago, 2000 BC, I think it's time for us to start reevaluating it. And I think this is where science drives policy and not policy drive science because that's where we are today right we have a lot of things that are just done because that's the way it should be done but i think we should be informed by science which determines policy and procedures and practice not the other way around and with the explosion of the biomedical research in the role of the microbiome in your overall health and wellness has driven patients more than the healthcare system into evaluating the role of the gut health in your overall health and well-being. 95% of neurotransmitters, happy hormones like serotonin, epinephrine, and dopamine originated in the gut. And so why not optimize gut function before we start giving patients antidepressants, anti-anxieties? Why don't we start evaluating the role of the gut in autoimmune diseases, right? Because if you think about it, you have the opportunity to eat something or drink something three times a day, at least three times a day, that affects your overall health and well-being but yet we marginalize it in conventional medicine. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? Like how we feel when we eat great food. Maybe we should start looking at that. 
Right. Like that nutrition can, you know, help us. It's so simple. You know, the idea that you eat nutritious food and you give your body nutritious fuel, high quality fuel, that your brain will work better, that everything will work better. And I think about that too, in the context, I was reading a study that high conflict relationships actually um, lead to leaky gut. Totally. And, and, and just that impact that, you know, when someone goes in with an emotional issue or an issue in general, that's showing up as a physical manifestation or physical expression of, you know, a disorder or autoimmune, that there is a link to, you know, our actual experience in life and our relationship to our emotions, our relationship to self-love, our relationship to all of these things. Like, do we take care of ourselves? Do we have good boundaries? Do we have high conflict in a relationship? And that, you know, I was reading a study that said that people in high conflict relationships, actually it leads to leaky gut, that it affects the microbiome and makes us more prone to, you know, obviously that inflammation and then disease. And I think that cascade, why you do such a multidisciplinary approach and why I wanted to have you on here is because people need to know that their relationship to the other people and their relationship to their health and their bodies and their emotions has an impact on their health. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, obviously from this psychosocial perspective, but also, you know, the biomedical perspective as well. This is where this role of salivary cortisol and adrenal fatigue and how high stress situations and relationships decrease your immune system, right? Because a high state of cortisol is a high, you know, conflict, conflict relationships or, or conflicted relationships or high stress relationships will continue to be taxing on your overall immunity because of the role of the cortisol. Cortisol is one of these hormones that is produced by your adrenal glands in a response to a stressful situation, which is so important. But at the same time, it can't be overworked. And once it starts being overworked, your immune system diminishes. And that's when you lead to many deteriorating health. Um, and in fact, just I just read today that leaky gut is could be, first of all, leaky gut, Real thing, bad name, what they've kind of evolved it in, in, into nowadays, it's called intestinal permeability syndrome. That word down, intestinal permeability syndrome, is leaky gut. So in the scientific literature, you're going to start reading more about it. intestinal permeability syndrome, not leaky gut. But leaky gut is a real thing. They've been proven to show, it's been proven to be shown in under the microscope. And that inflammatory process leads to a whole host of diseases. Now, the problem we don't really understand yet, is it the chicken or the egg? Does a high, you know, a high state of inflammation cause leaky gut or does leaky gut cause inflammation? Does leaky gut cause depression or does depression cause leaky gut? Does cancer cause leaky gut or, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. we don't really fully understand be the, the bi-directional. It probably is both. Um, but I think what your question really alluded to is that um, your your emotional state, your your psychological state, really impacts your overall health and well being. And one of the things I've seen the most, one of the worst things I've seen is the impact of loneliness, loneliness mm -hmm. and social isolation, with impact on health outcomes. And in fact, people with heart attacks, it's interesting you, what you talk about, Mark, because love is such an important factor to consider in healthcare, which is again mar marginalized, but. People who live a lonely existence or have had a traumatic emotional break point are more likely to have some serious, like I mean, heart disease, heart, a heart attack or cancer 
uh, in the preceding six months of that event. And mm-hmm. so there is obviously a lot of variables to consider, but just to think about that, when your, your core being gets shook like that, bad things happen. Yeah, especially when you don't have people around you that you feel like you can depend on or you just don't allow yourself to depend on, you know? And, uh, yeah, exactly. And I think and either that, way, it's, it's isolation, right? That's a big problem. Yeah, and, and that the body registers isolation and loneliness the same way we register physical pain, which is such a fascinating thing that, you know, I remember reading about from an evolutionary psychology perspective, they sort of posit that that means like you will feel this pain that's emotional in order to seek out other people, you know, to go yeah. save yourself because you're going to die if you're on your own, you know, sort of the evolutionary thought of it. And, or you're going to, you know, get attacked and die, you know. So there's all these reasons that we think it causes that cascade. But man, I, you know, you look at like the Harvard men's study, you know, that now has women in it, thank God, but they, it's the longest running study on well-being, and they showed that it didn't matter your blood pressure, your cholesterol at 50. The greatest predictor of your health was the quality of your relationships, not just romantic at age yeah. 50. And I think that's such a, it just keeps bringing it back to, you know, that what you do, which is that healthcare is not just reactive. It's not just, you know, give a pill for, what did you say? A pill for an ill? A pill for an ill. You know, it's about looking at the whole human. And I, I mean, I think for, you know, for the people listening, if they're dealing with autoimmune or they're dealing with, you know, because of course that's sure rampant these days. What is, what is the first step that you, you know, sort of recommend if they're not able to find the answers in their current healthcare situation? What do you recommend to them? Because I'm sure there's so much of that. So the first thing I always tell, you know, First of all, there, there's a lot of docs that are now coming into the space of, you know, integrative medicine and, and functional medicine, who really looks at the, you know, the whole picture. Um, unfortunately, there is a huge impedance to it, right, is that many insurance-based models don't cover for this. Hmm. Um, and so that's really a big problem. And, I, and oftentimes, I've always believed in, my, in anything I've done, it starts from the grassroots, right? We have to demand more, so therefore, they give us more. I mean, they meaning policy. Um, but the whole model of FRESH, right? If I can just go over it, it's, it's, it's an acronym. It's, it's, it's the acronym for five pillars or what I call now since being a chef, the five ingredients to health, food, relaxation, exercise, sleep, and happiness. You know, and our motto is when it comes to our health, it starts with food. But at the end of the day, what we all really want in life is to be happy. And I think one of the things that you mentioned and what Julie always tells me is, is the, what the great Chris Peterson reminds us, right, of the father, one of the fathers of positive psychology, that other people matter. Mm. And so being very mindful of your self-worth, self-value, and how you let others into your life. I think, you know, you're the create the love man, you know, and that's what you talk about all the time is there are love vampires, I call them, or energy vampires that are yeah. only there to take from you. And you know it. And for your audience out there, you know who they are. And you have to understand and appreciate your self-value. I have no time for bullshit. So if anybody brings me that kind of energy into, into my game, my life, you know, it's, it's a one, it's a one day thing, man, because I don't have time for that. And I think if anything, anyone takes away from this is that, 
healthcare starts with you and mm. it, it starts with who you surround yourself with. Um, and it's, and it's pretty easy. Um, my go-to, my go-to kind of foundation of this whole thing is, uh, the blue zones. Um, and if your audience doesn't know the blue zones, the blue zones are the five places around the world where people live to hundred happily and healthily. Um, and Dan Buettner is an anthropologist who kind of stumble across these five, these five blue spots around the, around the world. And they're really simple things, you know, eat more plants, eat less meat, eat with others, have some sort of faith-based community. I can't remember all nine, have wine at five, eat with others, um, okay. move. For sure. Community too. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, faith, belonging and, um, things like that. There's simple things that, you know, there was no such thing as Equinox or uh, a dreadmill, what I call it, uh, a, a swear master. You know, there was no such things back in the day. <laughs> a and swear it, master. <laughs> just get out there and start walking, you know, break a sweat every day. You know, these simple things that have been proven to increase life expectancy without the cost of disability, I think, are the principles that we have to return back to your point, back to our roots. And I think the wisdom that these traditional healthcare systems like traditional Chinese medicine mm-hmm. and Ayurvedic medicine offer may not pass the test of time in the biomedical model, but they've been around for 5,000 years. It's got to be doing something right. Man, amen to that. And I think one of the other factors, at least, that I consider too is when you think about the diseases that show up in the patients or the illness that they experience when they come to you, is there a common sort of archetype of a patient, you know, who experiences gut dysbiosis, like gut dysfunction or, or um, autoimmune? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you start, go- I can call them my biohackers. So like I, I forgot to mention, so you got your 10, you know, you got my by 10, 15% of people that, you know, have their yoga studio, occasionally dabble in meditation, shop at Whole Foods, you know, uh, connect with nature, which is a beautiful movement I love, and I know you love it too. It's called grounding. Um, those are like 10 to 15%. And then I have about 10% of patients that are want to optimize their health and well-being. And I'm going to throw you in that. You know, like you feel well, you're doing well, but you really want to live to 100 healthfully. Mm-hmm. And those are called my biohackers. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's when we do a lot of the testing and stuff like that. Yeah. But for the, for the majority, about 50% of my, my patients um, – well, say about 40% of my, 60% of my patients come in for gut testing. Yeah. Now, the problem is obviously when you have either, you know, uh, acid reflux, diarrhea, constipation, alternating bowel habits, brain fog, fatigue, it's, I, I always believe, and order an autoimmune disease, um, like thyroidism, right? Hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's is the number one autoimmune condition in the Americas. Wow. And actually the number one pill prescribed for Hashimoto's is the number one prescribed pill, uh, pharmaceutical pill. It's called Synthroid. Mm. And so those, those symptoms of like fatigue, brain fog, alternating bowel habits, um, I would argue most people have some, some of the days sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if it's a persistent thing, that's when you really should go get checked. Go to a doc that does integrative or functional medicine that understands the role of the microbiome and overall health and well-being. Now, about 20% of my patients, unfortunately, are the people that have been diagnosed with some 
life-altering condition like heart disease or cancer um, or you know, have around 10 pills mm. and finally decide enough is enough. I, there's got to be a way, better way. Um, and so unfortunately, there's not one single symptom, but I think if you think about one, it's fatigue. I think fatigue is something that is really rampant and I think really falls into a algorithm of the fresh model because it could be your food can affect your, your energy. Mm-hmm. Your, your meditation and your stress affects it. Exercising affects your energy. Sleep, you don't sleep, you have no energy. And just being lonely and sad, not happy, or as Julie says, uh, happiness is a verb, the pursuit of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that'll make you tired too. So if you have profound fatigue, it's something that you should get evaluated on. Do you find that there's, you know, at least in my experience, you know, I used to work as a pharmaceutical rep, as you know, uh, for years. And it's so interesting to be on the other side of um, the world now, you know, really believing, you know, having been someone who, I mean, I launched drugs for, like I launched a drug for irritable bowel syndrome um, in 2004 or something, maybe 2002 actually. And interestingly, there was not really a treatment for irritable bowel then. So there wasn't really an, a great ability to identify an IBS patient, uh, which stands for irritable bowel for those people listening. Um, and so in some essence, I sort of felt like I created an identification of a disease so the pill could be used, you know, when I look historically now. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And that was really, you know, now I definitely, when I first realized that I had a lot of shame because I'm like, wow, without that identification, then there wouldn't have been much, as much prescribing, which of course was my job was to increase prescribing. But what I saw a lot is that when I started talking about IBS, anyone who had it wanted to talk to me about their bowel movements that for, that was odd, but people just love talking about their bowel movements for some reason. And what was interesting is I noticed a common sort of behavioral type, which was yep. they, they tended to be high strung. They tended to not have great sort of nervous system control. You know, like their nervous system was constantly triggered. They were type A. They tend to be high strung. They tend to be obsessive, not obsessive compulsive, but there was an obsessive nature to them, like control, those things, which I'm guessing just causes a bit of gut disruption because you're constantly in a state of fucking monitoring and wanting to make things, you know, kind of like anxious attachment. <clears throat> yeah. Is this something that you see or yeah, am I totally, totally. So IBS is uh, un- so, so IBS, you actually, you wrote, you said ir- irritable bowel and you forgot the S the syndrome. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because the stint, so ir- irritable bowel, right. It's irritable, right. Either it's diarrhea or it's constipation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, Interestingly enough, this is one of the most common complaints that I get, right? It, because what you tap, what you hit on is the psychological component of it all. And they're starting to understand that there is a direct link between gut health and brain health, right? It's called the second brain oftentimes, the gut. And it's, re, it's, it's mitigated by those neurotransmitters I mentioned before, serotonin and dopamine, which again, 95%, 85 to 95% of those enzymes or hormones are made in your gut and they're realizing that through a nerve called the vagus nerve mm-hmm. that wraps around your entire intestinal tract has a direct has a direct connection has a direct connection to your brain so there that is why there's such a psychosocial 
emotional component to IBS. And that's why when you give someone with IBS initially an antidepressant, their IBS symptoms get better, Mm. which is kind of interesting. One of the beliefs I've always had, and science is starting to catch up on it, is that patients with IBS, again, there's usually some sort of what I call trauma to the GI system. Yeah. It could be emotional, right? It could be psychological. It could be infectious. And oftentimes, yeah. Or yeah, bacterial fact, or viral. Yeah. I'd call it infectious, right? It could be bacterial, it could okay. be fungal, it could be um, bacterial, fungal, or viral. Yeah. And oftentimes, you often hear someone say, I remember that trip I went to Mexico and I've never been right after that. Yeah. Or early exposure to antibiotics, which disrupts the microbiome, that you don't have good, enough good bacteria in it. Now, you would be wound up if you have IBS because either you're going to shit your pants or you're going to be constipated, right? Yeah. And so if you have diarrhea, you're so obsessive about finding – I have patients, unfortunately, that between their commute from, let's say, point A to point B, they know exactly where the next bathroom is. Wow, because they're always on emergency watch. So they're always concerned. If I have this or I do that, I'm going to have to go to the bathroom. It's interesting because it just perpetuates the vigilant nature of the being, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I oftentimes, most recently through my gut testing, um, I've been really exploring the role of um, excess bacteria in the small bowel. Hmm. And And for your audience members out there, it's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. SIBO SIBO is... Yeah, SIBO is a really common thing that has been under underappreciated, underrecognized because we in in many docs, particularly gastroenterologists, really kind of had, I guess, pun on words, poo-pooed the whole idea of the role of the microbiome on overall health and well-being. Now, most of your bacteria should lie in your colon, your large intestine, but when there's a preponderance or an overgrowth that mitigates and migrates into the small bowel, that's when real bad things start to happening, start to happen. And that's when you start seeing things that make so much sense to people when I break it down. But ingestion, digestion, and absorption are the three components of eating. But just because you put it in your mouth doesn't mean that it's getting absorbed into your body. So going back to your point, what can patients do is obviously, number one, you know, self-care, self-value. But the other thing to really consider is going to get your blood tested to see you know, vitamins and minerals that yeah. should be in you, but are not being absorbed because of leaky gut or SIBO. I remember going to you and um, when I had, what was this thing that was going on in my gut? I remember going to you and I was having issues with my gut. And you had yeast overgrowth, didn't you? Yeah, it was yeast overgrowth. That's right. And I remember going to you and getting, you know, all the gamut done and you being able to explain like my blood results based on microbiome issues that my, uh, oh yeah, because I had been eating a bulletproof diet, right? And I was also eating a little more carbohydrates, which those two, if you're going to go keto, you can't go kind of keto. <laughs> you know, you got to, I'm eating, you know, like carbohydrates and a lot of fat. And I, I remember my cholesterol was higher and I went to you and we talked about it. And what was fascinating is my family, I don't have a family physician, but my walk, you know, I went to a walk-in and I got my blood done. And the guy was like, well, we're going to have to refer you to a lipid clinic right away. And my testosterone was high. So he asked if I was taking steroids, which I told him, well, they're obviously not very effective for muscle. You took off his shirt. You took off his shirt and you were like, hell yeah. (laughs) I was like, "Uh, no. And he he did not ask me about my lifestyle. He didn't ask me about my diet. And I remember going to you for all of those things. 
And one thing that was really beneficial for me was starting to see it through this whole system rather than, you know, it was instantly like I was going to get referred to a lipid clinic and probably put on a statin. But instead, when I went to you, we talked about it and I changed my diet and we, and everything starts to go under control because you're treating me as where with him having sold uh, statins before, which are drugs for cholesterol for people listening. I was like, no, I don't want to go on that. I want to like, let's change my lifestyle. Let's do something. You didn't even ask me any questions. And I find that can be very frustrating. Well, I think one of the rules, you know, being a kid in Queens, you know, uh, two things you always say, you don't get high in your own supply, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. so as a, as, as a pharmaceutical salesman, your job was to sell statins, right? And then yeah. now looking looking at it from the patient point of view or the consumer point of view, it's a little different conversation, right? It's massively different, especially when you start to read all of the other research about these things, not just the stuff that a pharmaceutical rep is presented, which is literally just the positive research generally, um, but also just the available research that you can consume from physicians who have YouTube channels and people like you who do talks and communicate other information about the actual medicine you might be taking into your body without considering lifestyle interventions and food changes and exercise, you know, all these other things where you don't have to put yourself, it's almost like we want to shortcut everything. Like I'm going to eat a ton of shit and then I'm just going to take this pill and then it'll erase all the shit I ate. Yeah. And you're starting to see a lot of that research, right? And so what I love about, you know, at least my style of practice, it's really an homage to the past right before there was all this high tech stuff. And I think you can get so much, you know, in Harvard studies after Harvard studies have shown that 80% of all diseases are preventable and potentially reversible with lifestyle as medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately you can't, you can't patent it. Right. And when we're seeing from the food movement, because I spent half my time in the food world, in the kitchen, what we're starting to realize is that if we focus on weight loss, all will you, all you will do is lose weight. You don't achieve health and wellness, mm. right? And so therefore, if we kind of change the paradigm, looking at dietary patterns and behaviors and not so much the actual vitamin or that one single, you know, one single thing, um, it's a dietary pattern that really has the greatest impact on health and, and wellness and not a, a, a one single micronutrient. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. In the in the context of people who are battling, you know, autoimmune or Hashimoto's, you know, as you were talking about, or hypo hyper or hypothyroidism, the you have seen people resolve those things. True. Oh yeah, of course. Right, and and of they course. they are told often. And I have you watched that documentary on Netflix called Heal? No. Well, Deepak Chopra says something, and I just like the line where he says, um, "Believe that." diagnosis but not the prognosis and i really like that line in this idea of like i've met lots of people who have autoimmune who um are told like you're just going to have to live with this oh yeah why do you think synthroid is the number one drug right and that's that's it you know you you find a diagnosis that's what you learn in medical school you make a diagnosis and then you find a, a treatment plan which is basically 95 percent pharmaceutical or procedural mm -hmm. Right. All that other stuff doesn't have an impact. And, you know, listen, in the in the uh, in the in the kitchen, gluten is your best friend. Sometimes gluten is not your best friend. And this is really where, what I like to focus on, because food can bring you 
first, first of all, food is food and medicine is medicine, right? Because you can't enjoy medicine like you do in food. Because oftentimes you hear this thing, food is medicine, food is medicine. But I think it really shames food. It minimizes food. Food is to be shared. It's to be tasted. It's supposed to be loved. It's supposed to be eaten and with a community. Medicine doesn't do that, right? Medicine is usually by yourself popping a pill and not finding any joy out of it, right? And so food can be medicine, but it's not medicine, number one. Number two, we have the ability to augment food as medicine with herbs and dietary supplements that can help a good dietary pattern and, and plan. If that doesn't work, then we have pharmaceuticals, right? So it shouldn't be your first line defense. I'd say it should be the fourth or fifth line of defense when things are not working out just right. And in general, is your experience that the medical training does not teach like your standard primary care physician how to do the other things first? Like to, if you're not receiving nutrition information in your training, then how are you going to dole out the best nutrition information? Or the, even if you're not exercising yourself or you're not, you know, you might understand the physiology of or the pathology of disease. But if you don't understand how these other things can impact, you know, even the microbiome, like how many primary care physicians or physicians in general are trained on the microbiome? Less than 1% probably. Isn't but that, again, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, but, but if you think about it, right. And so, your general practitioner is there is not, how do I put this? This is not a bash against doctors because we, we, this is what I always say when I say publicly is that we all do what we're taught. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so therefore is your physician, your medical doctor, the best source of information for everything? No, of course not. Right. And why should we expect them? To that's be not fair to expect from them too. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's really, you know, and if you need, let's say if you have open heart, if you need open heart surgery, right, you're not going to go to your general practitioner. You go to someone who is trained in cardiovascular surgery. And that's where I think, you know, the field of integrative medicine or functional medicine or holistic medicine, it has to be board certified too, because there's been a great book and I, I'll, I'll allude to it in a little bit. It's Disappearance of Expertise. I don't know if you know this book. No. It's a really fascinating idea. It's because what we kind of made fun of in the last couple of years is this notion of expertise. And I think, you know, we can all be experts in something, mm -hmm. but there has to be hard work involved in it. There has to be some education in it. Yeah, you and can't I think, just call yourself some. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. And you and I have talked about this, you know, yeah. and I think, you know, a lot of people out there in, in, um, in the social media world, you know, are defining themselves as experts. And I think mm -hmm. oftentimes someone should define you as an expert. You shouldn't define yourself as an expert in many cases without the credibility and the education and the practical use of this knowledge. And then I think it becomes dangerous. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, you know, it's kind of like if you're not living what you're teaching and you're not, I mean, you can, it's like when someone calls themselves guru, I always find that very weird. Like my name is guru, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, <laughs> call yourself guru, which I know means teacher, but still it's, it's sort of a weird thing to self title. No offense. If you're listening and you call yourself guru, I, yeah, just, I know I understand it more. And, and, you know, like you said, you know, I, in the context of physicians who went through training, you know, which didn't have extensive training on nutrition and other things, you know, it's so important to self-educate because of course we're in this time when a patient 
Well, and I know in the world of physicians, you can go get like continuing education and credits and all that kind of stuff. But in, in a time when patients Google everything, you know, for the most part, they're going to come in asking a lot. I mean, you must get that a ton where people are coming in asking tons of questions. Yeah, I love it, though. I love when patients come in because actually they have taken their care into their own hands. Although their information may be somewhat convoluted, at least they're trying, they're trying to find, they're on a journey, right? And at least they're starting to walk it. They, you know, they're starting to walk on that journey instead of someone who is just passively waiting for this enlightenment to hit them over the head. I think, you know, once someone comes in with, hey, what about this? What about that? At least they're an engaged participant in their health instead of being a forced, you know, a, a, a health being forced upon them. Yeah, because I think the, the, or the etymology of the word patient, I believe, means suffering. Was. Exactly. In the experience of the people that you have seen resolve, you know, their autoimmune or their disorder, whatever it is, getting their cholesterol back under control, their blood pressure, whatever these things that are seemingly unchangeable or uncontrollable, or what are the common things that you see in changes in these patients? One, obviously, they're already self-selecting for sort of taking their health under control if they're seeing you. You know, but what else is there that that you're like, wow, they made these dramatic changes or or even in the way that you interact with them, I, w- I would imagine as part of it, that you're spending time with them, that you're, you know, listening to them. But what are some of the common things that for people listening are like, oh, I got to get down with that. I got to do that. <sighs> I actually almost want to flip it on to you. Like, why do why do you think people reach out to you, Mark? I think it's probably we, we share common common approach. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I sort of look at someone's life and I go, okay, well, let's look at you as an individual. Yeah, we have patterns in your relationship, but let's look at you as an individual. Now, if you could create you and unplug everyone who's powered into your system, all the vampires, so to speak, who would you be and how would you express if you weren't worried about rejection, if you weren't worried, like, what would your life look like if you didn't get taught how it should look? And I yeah, really feel like that, like finding your voice, stepping into your power, setting up boundaries. I feel like boundaries, honestly, I think having good boundaries is probably, uh, should be one of the core pillars of all education from, for health, for medicine. Because if you believe you got your own back, no longer will you, um, I think it really reduces cortisol, it reduces stress, it reduces nervous system response, it helps you um, regulate your vagal nerve tone. Like everything comes from knowing you're safe. That to me, I think is like one of the oh, just, secret cures. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think checking in, I think that's the other thing, right? I'll give you a patient example. Um, yeah. Today I was just on a phone call with a patient of mine who father woke up on Saturday, just going to the bathroom with chest pain. And um, he started developing chest pain in bed and then got up. His son called me up to tell me that, you know, my dad's having this chest pain. He's in bed and he's having chest pain. But when he got up, it felt a little bit better. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit, you got chest pain while non-exerting yourself. That's probably worse than chest pain with exertion. And so I think a lot of people just are not mindful of, how their body is now and how good their body can feel. Mm-hmm. Because if, if pain hurt, there would be a lot. It would be a, I always say chest pain is a great, one of the greatest motivators of change, 
right? Amen. Because if you have pain, you got to get rid of pain and that will change. So unfortunately, many diseases like um, headache, guess what? Headache changes behavior because you are constantly, you're getting biofeedback on that pain syndrome. Hypertension doesn't hurt. Diabetes doesn't hurt. Obesity doesn't hurt until it really hurts. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the principles I always try to share with my patients is check in, right? Check in with yourself. Is everything working? Am I having acid reflux after I eat that? That's probably not, that's probably not feeding us. I know I get gassy after cheese. I feel bloated. (laughs) Or I snore actually after cheese. Maybe cheese is not the best thing for you. I know. As you say that, I'm like, shit, I got to take responsibility for pizza. God damn it. There you go. I love pizza though. But you said we had pizza at your house and you made the most delicious pizza. What did we use for, what did we use? Like I was part of it. What did you use for cheese? What did we use that cheese that night? Was it cashew cheese? It was cashew based cheese. Yeah. It was a whole wheat bread, thin Thin, thin bread there. Uh, wait a second. Was that Valentine's Day? You on, broke up on yeah, us? you, you, uh, I third wheeled you and Julie's Valentine's Day dinner is the best, but the, you use those beyond meat sausages too. I did use beyond meat. I, again, I don't use those. I don't use those often, you know, because again, it's, I, I, one of my, one of my health principles is eat real food in its, in its, in its whole form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I love the fact that people are switching and looking for plant sources of, of animal protein um, instead of animal protein, plant sources of protein. Um, but again, I, I use them sparingly like I do any, any other form of, of animal protein, animal products. When I, it, I think that, you know, just the level of responsibility of recognizing that, you know, the cheese makes my nose stuffy, but does it make my life bad enough that I should change? But then it starts to think like, well, what else is cheese doing to my body? You know, what mm-hmm. else is it doing within my body that's causing uh, an allergic sort of reaction to it? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, oftentimes, you know, in, in our practice, I always make people, I always try to make people aware of their body talking to themselves, right? Or, or, of their body talking. So gluten is one of those perfect examples, right? Some people can't tolerate gluten at all. But if you go to Europe, people are eating gluten like crazy, right? And that's, and you start taking, you start scratching the head, why? Why people in Europe can tolerate gluten and why Americans can't tolerate gluten? Mm-hmm. And again, it, it's, it's, first of all, it's individual. And number two goes back to the point of sourcing foods, um, cheese as well. People in Europe can eat cheese. In America, they can't eat cheese. And I think it's, it's the quality of our, of our food and our interaction with our food through our gut microbiome that really impacts how we feel. Um, I guarantee if you go to Europe, and I hear it all the time, if you go to France, if you go to Paris and have a baguette in Paris, there's nothing wrong. Yeah, I have a friend who went traveling and ate pasta in Italy, or pasta, as people call it, different places. But they ate it in Italy, and they were fine. Yeah. And so is it, is it, is it the actual pasta? Is it the cheese? Or is it your microbiome or your gut health? And I think that's, that's where we have to, regardless of what it is, Mark, I think we just have to be more aware of how we feel, what we eat, when we eat it. Well, and being able to, as you said, there's no feedback that's direct. Even, you know, I think it's interesting too that emotionally, because it, you know, even though our brains register emotional pain in the same place we do physical pain, we have been socialized and taught 
that sadness, grief, and anger are bad feelings. Like if you're sad, you shouldn't feel sad. Or like if you're experiencing grief, you shouldn't. Or if you're angry, you shouldn't put those away or take a pill for those. And if anyone gets triggered by that, who's depressed or has benefited, I don't mean in all contexts. I'm just speaking on a general messaging. That's what we say is we're taught messages by parents. We're taught messages by society. Even the fact that when we are sad, if we were instead, it was our hand that we put on a stove and it was burning, we would move our hand. But when we experience negative emotion, as we call it, even though it's emotion, it's just information. It doesn't have to be bad or good. Just some of them feel good and some of them don't feel so good. But really what it's saying is something in your life is causing you to feel anxious or depressed. And it could be what you're eating. It could be your microbiome. It could be your microbiome's response to your life. You know, it could be all of the convoluted things. But at the same time, it's still saying, do something about it instead of taking a pill to hide it. And I'm not saying that's always true because I know that gets real people real fired up. No, there's a role for it, right? There's a role. But I think what we're both trying to do in your, in your space and in my space is be aware of it, right? Without awareness, there's, there's no change, I think, you know? And I think, I love what you just said, you know, label that as emotion. Don't label it as negative emotion. I don't consider it a negative symptom. I just think it's a symptom. Yeah. It's the context of how we describe it, right? Totally. It's like the narrative, uh, the story we tell about the thing, you know, then defines our response to the thing. But if you go like, oh, I'm sad, I shouldn't be sad. It's like, well, you are. (laughs) So what is my sadness teaching me? What is my anger telling me? What is it asking of me? And I really think like one of the most powerful things anyone can do, which initiates their progress to go to see you right away, which, which it's so great that you have created that platform and that experience, which is taking their fucking power back, like really stepping in and taking control of their own health, taking control of their own life and really stepping into the desire to want to heal and be open to there being possible. I think like one of the greatest things that you do is saying you can heal this like that alone. Just that suggestion is like, now there's a path that's different than what I thought. Oh, I see it every freaking day. You know, it's like, it's, you got to live, you know, oftentimes patients. And if you ever go to actually at your Motu conference, we, we, we launched that video, that little cute video. And if, I don't know if you have it, but I would, I'll, I'll send it to you. I can link but it out a, on the show. Yeah, it, It's a cute little video. Right. And oftentimes patients say, say to me, they come in a couple of things. They say, Oh, you know, I feel like shit, but my doctor says all your labs are normal. <laughs> and that's where it stops, right? Yeah. And that's where the conversation, well, maybe it's not your labs. Maybe it is your relationships. Maybe it is your work. And I've been, I've been known and I actually just saw someone, thank you, Mark, someone that you know that you referred to me, mm-hmm. uh, who is leaving their job. And oftentimes, fuck, you spend, you spend so much time at work. You spend more time at work than you do with your loved ones and or your wife or your spouse or your partner. But yet you don't think that that, that emotional trauma that you suffer Every single day, which I like to get into that because I don't think there's no such thing as burnout. I think it's your soul speaking to you. I totally agree with you. And oftentimes, you know, burnout, you know, in the context of work or career, it puts the blame on you. You're not tough enough, you know, in healthcare. In healthcare, it's one of the biggest crises. You know, it's one, 400 doctors kill themselves each year from, from quote unquote burnout. 
Yeah. Shit, it's not burnout. It's 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 your soul being your soul crying for change, but you're not allowing it. You're not listening for it to change. And, and the then lack of stuck. boundaries. There it is again, right? And so you're letting your you, you are. And listen, it's hard, man. You know, listen with with kids and responsibilities or mortgage. It's hard to take that leap. Mm-hmm. But if you don't if you don't take that leap, you know, you're not suffering from burnout. You're just suffering from what I call abuse. And you have to get out of that. And no meditation, no food, no nothing will get you out of that. You literally have to get out of that relationship. Yeah, you can't hack your your way out of it. You can't. You can't. And and I think that's one of the biggest things that I tell patients. And oftentimes patients say to me, Doc, you know, you were right. My job was slowly killing me and Mm -hmm. or or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my partner or my spouse. I, unfortunately, I try to keep it real as much as I can with my patients. And oftentimes people, and that's what I love about you, Mark, is that no bullshit, keeping it real. And I try to do the same thing with my patients. And sometimes I may offense people, but I tell you from my professional expert opinion, why I think you're in what I call dis-ease. And it's not because of your, your microbiome or your gluten that you're eating or your candida. It's because of the relationships and again, going back to our point, your point, boundaries that you allow yourself in your relationships to exceed the minimum threshold of acceptance that you allow for anyone else. Man, and when you do that, when you raise that standard, that price of admission for just what you accept in your life, it doesn't have to be with just romance. It could be it. It has to actually, though, um, transfer to everything in your life. Because, you know, I always say to people, like, your self-worth will always hinge on your weakest choice. Like, if you make tons of choices that say you love yourself, but then you make one that says, I'm a piece of shit, or I don't love me, I'm no, I don't protect me, I don't have my back, then that's how you're going to feel. At least in that moment. It doesn't mean that it's going to be how you, but if you are collectively allowing that, you will collectively feel a lack of self-worth. And what you're saying about really calling out truth for people is, we don't often, we feel bad if we don't like our job. And like you said, burnout. It's like I said, I was at this workplace conference where I was speaking about work-life balance and what's really important in life. And I was saying like, work-life balance is just bullshit. Like there's just life and then there's everything you put in life. You don't get to go home from work and pretend that what happened at work didn't affect you. It's going to affect how you speak to your partner, your kids, it's going to be high. And just like how your home affects you is going to affect you. You don't get to work at nine, eight, seven, whenever any people start working, but you don't get there and have it just have a fight with your partner and get there and be like, Ooh, I can't wait to be so effective today. Like bullshit. People are thinking about it. It's affected. They're, they're ruminating all day on it, you know? And it's, I, I really think that if your work's not giving you energy, then you need to look at it. If your house is, if your home isn't giving you energy, you need to look at it. Yeah. And I, and I know you and I have spoken about this and, you know, um, I've been blessed and then, and so you've been blessed to, to go to corporations, you know, and I know it, I know when I get invited there, if there is change, if change will happen because you feel it as soon as you walk in there. And oftentimes, you know, these human resource officers and, and, and whoever's inviting you, oftentimes they quote unquote have to do this because our employees are not happy. Yeah. Our employees are stressed. And I know as soon as I walk in there, I'm saying to myself, this is just a checkbox by HR that bringing in this doc to talk about happiness and stress and the effects of stress and everything. And it's this 
like token that they have to just check their box. But when you hear of that CEO that's really trying to change the culture of work, because it's simple, right? You take care of the people that work for you, people will show up. You know, in this whole world of productivity and absenteeism, what I mean by that is like people show up to work, but they're still absent. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that's your point. Right. And that's it, it, it. You cannot separate. And I, we call it fresh life. The fresh life is really about uh, defining the life you want to live and finding work that supports it. And it may, it may not be, you know, listen, I left a, and I've told you this story. I left a large, a good paying job with a, at a large healthcare institution partly because I realized that I wasn't happy in my job in that position was to be the doctor of this health institution. How can Julie says it all the time? How can you pour from an empty cup? Mm. Right. And that's the thing that oftentimes we're asked to do over and over again at work, at home, in relationships is that you are completely empty, but you're asked to fill another cup, another cup. And if, unless you fill your cup up, they, as they say in Brooklyn, they ain't nothing going to happen. <laughs> I, um, I also love the story of what you did at that hospital that you were working at, where you saw the quality of food. Um, can you just, you know, I think that's such a beautiful uh, thing that you did, if you could just tell people a bit about. Yeah. So, you know, my dad always jokes, it's like, son, why couldn't you just be a cardiologist and put stents in people and make a lot of money? Uh-huh. And so what I, I, I've tried to do in my last 15 years of my 20 years of my career is really try to change two systems with the healthcare system and the food system. And obviously if, if anybody's been in a hospital in anywhere in the country and, and oh, probably in, Canada, Canada, in, in the world, really. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because I get pictures of people Meat all over the world. Yellow. Oh, it's terrible. Um, one of the greatest ir- ironies that I think is out there is the, 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 the lack of healthy food in our hospitals or the, the abundance of bad food in the hospitals. And what's fucked up about it is that you're serving the exact same foods to our patients that are in cardiac units and cancer units that brought, put them in there in the first place. Oh my God, and so you have yeah. a heart attack, you know, you have a heart attack, you go to the hospital, you get open heart surgery or a stent. And then the next morning the person comes in and says, would you like hamburger? Would you like your breakfast with bacon or eggs or sausage? And, and it's, to me, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And that's, this is where people start thinking it's all a conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. Because the food industry feeds you things that make you sick. And then you go into a hospital and it's driven by pharmaceuticals that get you good enough to get out so that you can do it again. And I always call it, it's a Lipitor chaser with my Big Mac. <laughs> and the beauty, right? The beauty of it is that the numbers get better. So I think one of the greatest fallacies is that through the power of medicine, right, is that if you think about it, right, you, you take a Lipitor, your cholesterol gets better, so you can go eat a hamburger. Mm-hmm. You have massive acid reflux. You take a protonics or a anti-acid pill, and you can go eat whatever you want. Yeah. Right. And so it's truly a Band-Aid for all the things that, are really wrong with you, but because of modern medicine or a stent, right? For those people that don't understand a stent, stent is really a, a artificial way of opening blood vessels to your heart when you are having a heart attack or you had a heart attack. When one of your blood vessels is blocked, they can actually put a stent in that blood vessel so that blood can continuously flow. 
and what I've what I just find crazy is that medicine. And listen, medicine's amazing, right? And again, nothing against my my friends and surgeons who. There is a role of chemotherapy in cancer care. There is a role of medications in, in, in severe heart disease. But a lot of the things that we deal with, like chronic diseases, can be reversible and preventable. But you have to change the way we actually do it, do medicine. And all these Band-Aids for these common symptoms that we have, there is usually, and this is what I love about integrative and functional medicine, what we try to do is find that root cause. And oftentimes, it's inflammation. And inflammation, we always think about food as anti-inflammatory and pro-inflammatory things. But I think going to what I think you and I share in common is that your emotional state can be very inflammatory too. Mm -hmm. And so when someone says something inflammatory to you, your body reacts that way. And so there has to be another way to do it. And that's what we try to do at our hospital system, right? And so what we did at Lenox Hospital when I was there is really tried to change the food system. And um, the only way we were able to do that is through, against collaboration and and care. And, you know, we, I did have enlightened administrators in our hospitals to listen to what I wanted to do. But for anyone who's out there who's in healthcare, and I know I met a couple of people through your summit and through your, your platform, Mark, that are in healthcare, and I am so honored and, and humbled by people reaching out to me about, how did you do it, Rob? Um, because it wasn't easy, but I always say it has to be the right time, has to be the right people, it has to be the right team, because you can't do it alone, and you have to have the right amount of money, because ideas are just ideas. Um, ideas or dreams until you have a plan and then you have to execute them. Mm-hmm. Cause I can't tell you how many people tell me, Hey Rob, you know what? I have a great idea. And then they kind of leave it up to you, right? They kind of leave it up to you to do it. And oftentimes you have to be the owner of that idea and you have to just not give me idea. You have to be, you have to take the first step. Um, and so at Lenox hospital, what we did is, is introduce a very beautiful concept called um, meatless Mondays where Again, we're not trying to make everyone vegans, but there is a global crisis both in our health and in climate change that um, we have to start eating less meat mm-hmm. and we have to start eating more plants. Yeah. Um, and number two, our hospital foods, going back to that point, we start, have to start feeding people healthy food in our hospitals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one in three children's hospitals, one in three children's hospitals in America have a fast food restaurant in there. That's so bad. It's so bad. It's so, so bad. Change that shit too. And then the last thing I did, you know, in, in, in New York, I live in New York City and we have millions of square foot um, guard, um, rooftops. And what we did at Lenox Hill, my wife and I developed the first ever, ever edible educational rooftop garden farm where we fed patients rooftop to bedside meals. And so it was more symbolic. And before I left a healthcare system, I did a TED talk. And my TED talk was basically going back to our roots and we have to start caring for one another because they, that ubiquitous they, will not do it. We have to do it for ourselves. And, and it's really been, you know, um, it's been an interesting journey since we started Fresh about two and a half years ago. It's still a baby. It's still, an, it's a toddler. Um, but I think it's, it's gotten wings. And what I am blessed about and what Julie and I are blessed, that people come to us, people show up. Um, and I think the people are sick and tired of being sick and tired and want a new, fresh approach to health. And um, we can't do it alone. And it takes everyone like you, Mark, that, you know, makes, wake, awakens people to 
to feel that they deserve better and they have to demand better of themselves first and then of others. Um, and so it's been a cool ride. Yeah, what you guys are doing is awesome. I mean, I, I was already super, you know, obviously positive psychology is a program I did for anyone listening and I met uh, Rob's wife, Julie, at it. And so, you know, that aspect of it is such a, you know, this idea of positive psychology was that we've spent, you know, the last couple centuries studying what's wrong with people instead of actually studying what is it about people who thrive and really the, the core tenet of positive psychology is sharing those skills and teaching them to other people of how, what makes people happy? What is the science of optimism? What is the science of hope? You know, all these different things, uh, what makes positive relationships and how that integrates with health is so important. And I think what you just spoke to, which I think is sort of the, the underpinning of all of it is when you decide, when you stop waiting for a system to fix itself, to help you, when you stop waiting for someone to come save you, when you stop waiting for someone else to do the healing for you and you decide to do it for yourself, everything changes. Everything changes. Because then your biology shifts because it goes from, I'm waiting for you to love me so there's validation of my lovability to if I love me, I don't need you to validate it. If I choose my own health and I'm empowered, then I don't need a system to give that to me. I'm going to give it to myself. And so much of what provides, because obviously you know, food can be expensive. Growing your own food is possible, of course, but food can be very expensive. Um, and so what do you recommend? Yeah, Mark, I got to interrupt you there because yeah. I, I was just, I was just this morning. Um, I was at a, um, at a conference this morning um, with in New York city, there's five boroughs, right? And for your audience member, for you, Mark, right? We have Queens, we have Brooklyn, Manhattan, Island, and the boogie down Bronx. The boogie down right? Bronx. So there's five boroughs. And this morning, there were four of the five borough presidents came to talk to uh, a group of people about their food policy, what, what their food policy is in each borough, which will then, then scale up to the city. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I, you know, I got to, again, keep it real. Healthy food doesn't have to be expensive. True. Now, when you talk about food, what I, you know, I'm half Latino and half white. My dad's from Washington State. I always say I'm a son of a farmer and a son of an immigrant. And growing up in a low to middle income neighborhood in Queens back in the 1970s and 80s, you know, back then, there was no such thing as grass-fed meat. There was no such thing as organic, right? And so those things cost a lot of money. And so what we, as many immigrants did, is go back to our roots and eat the foods that are cheap. And it's mostly plant-based foods, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore, we always focus on organic vegetables and everything. And I think there's an important movement to start thinking about, yeah, grow your own food. That's probably the cheapest you're gonna do. But if you don't, eat more plants, eat more beans, eat more grains, eat more whole food plant-based meals because your paycheck is usually driven, I'll tell you right now, about the meats that you buy, the milk that you buy, the eggs that you buy, a bag of beans, a bag of lentils lasts a long time. You can make them into salads, salads, soups, and you can actually, and that's what I love. I love, you know, as a chef, I love to scratch, scratch cooking made at home and bulk cooking, you know, and therefore you can actually, Buddha bowls are great. I love Buddha bowls and and I'm going to go off a little tangent right now because Buddha bowls originated from, the parts of the world where there's Buddhas, there's Tibetan monks. And what a Tibetan monk basically do is every morning they go out with a bowl 
to the community and all the communities, what they have left over from the night before, put it into a bowl. And that's why Buddha bowls look like Buddha bowls because it's a little <laughs> bit of everything that the community gave the Buddha. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And that's, and I think it's cheap, you know, yeah, it's, it's cheap. cheap. And we often think about healthy food being expensive. And in fact, it's usually the animal proteins that make that meal expensive. Well, I think that's a good way to tell people that if you want to, you can mix it up with all the stuff you got left. You could go to your neighbors and stop by. What'd you make last night? Can you fill this bowl? That's good. Mark, you probably do that. In Vancouver, it's probably a little safer than going down, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's probably a little easier to do to my neighbors. But um, so how do people, and thank you for being on today because, you know, I love this conversation. I love everything about it. And I think it's so important that we take control of our health and that we believe it is possible. Just like it's possible, anyone can have an amazing relationship. Anyone can begin to take charge of and create health, which just transcends everything. So, right? Health is the greatest wealth. Without health, you can't do anything. No. And I just got to say one thing everyone knows, and this is why I'm so fucking passionate about this because it is preventable it is reversible you don't catch diabetes it's not like a cold you don't catch it. yeah that's right right diabetes doesn't run in your family it, you know it, it it can change you and it's up to you and i again i got to give a little love fest to you mark it's because you got to it starts with loving yourself first mm-hmm. set up those boundaries you know, and it could be boundaries with your docs too. If your doc doesn't understand, it doesn't speak the language you do, find another doctor, right? And you, and same thing with relationships. If that person's not quote unquote feeding you, find another person, find another job, you know? And I think one of the things I try to do is, is, is to enlighten people that health is the greatest wealth you can have. It starts with you. Don't go to the doctor expecting health care, mm. right? Health- at home it starts in our churches it starts in our gyms it starts in our communities it starts it starts everywhere i often say healthcare stops in our hospital mm. right that's where it begins and so it, the onus is really up to you to be your best doctor be your own advocate mm. oh um adopt a fresh life because i think they're really simple tips that you know, it's really Julie, and I have to, I have to shout out Julie because Julie is the creator of the, the, like the content creator of it all, and it really is a way of life that really requires a lot of investment of you. Don't wait for others to change, like you said, Mark. It starts with you, and you have to take ownership of your own healthcare because if you don't find healthcare, you're going to find medical care, and it's a lot worse mm-hmm. than that. Amen to that, and I think you know what's beautiful too is the fact that of the fresh model food doesn't as you correct me doesn't have to be expensive and the other things are all free <laughs> like relaxation exercise sleep happiness you can learn to reframe your mind to look for the good it's normal it's biological to look for the bad you know yeah. it's, that's what you know all the people who didn't see the tiger aren't here today they're not on they might be on ancestry.com but you know they didn't there's no one who who just went around, you know, singing songs and not looking for threats is here. This is not true. So we have a negativity bias and it's, we can change that, you know, and I relaxation, sleep, exercise, all of these things, like you said, get out, go for a walk, you know, it's not learn how to meditate. My God, please. Can everyone just learn how to meditate? Just do that. It's free. You can get an app. Insight timer is great. Just learn how to meditate. 
one of my favorite things is meatless is Monday campaigns. I am a brand ambassador. I get paid nothing for it, but because I believe it so much in the Monday campaigns, they have de-stress Monday. They have it move it Mondays. They have amazing on Instagram. On Instagram, they have it's called de-stress Monday. They have these beautiful gifts on Instagram that teach you how to meditate. If you don't have five minutes to meditate, Mark, you need yeah. twenty a day and if you don't have 20 minutes you need an hour a day make it part of your day just like you brush your teeth you got to wake up you got to spend five minutes looking in inward it's in it's everybody's looking to work out i think it starts with working in first right yeah i love that and i you know people who are who will say to me often i hear this um i try to meditate i'm like have you ever heard of yoda because he'd be like there is no try there is do or do not like you can't try sit down fucking put on a meditation and just sit through the noise and you learn that that noise starts to go away when you're in a conflict or when you're trying to make better decisions about your food, when you're trying to choose to ex- I mean, all of it changes. All right. So how do people find you guys? So, um, our website is www.freshmednyc, F-R-E-S-H-M-E-D-N-Y-C.com. On Instagram and our socials, it's FreshMedNYC. Um, you can come to Brooklyn. Um, you can call. We have an office. Um, I guess that's the, that's the best way to get in touch with us. Yeah, as a patient of Rob's. Follow up, everything. And in terms of patients, um, if you're ever in Brooklyn, um, in New York City, come and see me. People, you know, oftentimes, again, it's, it's, self-care. it's a self-care program. You come and see me once. We set off the plan like we did with you, Mark, and then we can actually do a lot of phone call via, you know, via Skype, via Zoom, via the other way. So go to FreshMed NYC, fill out the contact us, corporate wellness there as well, on socials as well. Yeah, I feel like if you in any way are not feeling like you're getting your healthcare needs met with your physician, I mean, as a patient of Rob's, I absolutely recommend him and Julie. They set around a good set out a great plan and, and it's executable and there's high touch points about questions. And I felt supported through that transition um, the whole time and continue to, of course, because I crashed your Valentine's Day party. So, yeah. I mean, shit. All right, everybody. You know how to find Rob. Rob, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate you, brother. Love you, Mark. Love you too, Bo. Bye. Thank you.